and they come to trail. This microphone is being ridiculous. Hold on. I'm shove it in my ear. Hold on. <laughs> okay, anyway, so I have family and friends who live all over the place who do come to visit all the time. And just over Labor Day was a big visit time. Um, my, I have three kids, and my oldest son turned 10 on September 3rd. So I have a totally different understanding of Labor Day uh, since he was born on Labor Day. <laughs> and also, um, I have some of you know, my husband is the campus pastor at QC West. And it was an unplugged weekend on Labor Day where we didn't get the video from Rock Ryman, but he preached the sermon. So because it was Labor Day and my son's 10th birthday and Steve was preaching and we were all really excited, half of my family came to visit on Labor Day. And half of my family equals 19 people. And so, you know, being the woman in the house, right, how much preparing did I have to do? Cooking and cleaning and meal planning and entertainment. And it's very important to me well, and all the people in my family, to try and be the best aunt. And so I had to make it really awesome for my nieces and nephews so that they would want to keep coming. So there was just a lot of preparing, and um, I just wonder for you, how are you preparing? Um, we tease my mom for what, like, a crazy lady she turns into. And I won't even tell you the nickname she has. It's not church appropriate. But <laughs> so some people get kind of crazy, right? And other people, maybe you just lean back and go, whatever, I'll just be honest about how I live. Um, maybe you get flustered and fall apart. Maybe you should shut your door and pretend you're not home. But I wonder, let's just start with how do you prepare? What are you like when you're having company? Go ahead for a minute. I know that wasn't much time, but... As I was preparing this, my list of things to do just got longer and longer and longer, and I have lots of things for you to talk about. So we'll just move on and get going. Um, so today's lesson is about preparing ourselves, but not exactly for house guests. But, um, you know, we're talking about the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven and what that means for our lives. Um, just trying to say, we're going to just wrestle with what does that mean? What does it mean to me? Um, are we living in the kingdom of heaven? How do we know? What, what should that look like? And so last week, Margie set the stage for the history, but there's a long history of even just the concept of the kingdom of heaven. Um, but just to like get us up to speed where we are in Matthew, since that's where we'll be spending our time, um, remember that by the time Jesus came onto the scene, the people were expecting like more of a political kingdom. <clears throat> they're expecting a physical, political kingdom with a king, and they're hoping that Jesus is going to be their king um, who would rule over their people. <laughs> but we know that didn't really happen, right? Jesus did not bring a physical, political kingdom. Um, and I think for us, maybe the concept is still abstract. Um, you know, we don't, I don't think any of us are expecting a physical, political kingdom to come. Um, but do we really, do we really get it? And in the book of Matthew, and as Jesus is talking about, he is definitely talking about something that's more personal and more spiritual and a, um, just a more spiritual level. Um, so today we begin with looking at Jesus' ministry years. 
since that's when we first start hearing about the kingdom of heaven. Um, so in Matthew, we're skipping over his birth and childhood, and maybe we'll come back at Christmas. But for now, we're going to skip to um, Jesus' ministry, which really begins with John the Baptist's ministry, because he's announcing Jesus. Um, so let's turn to it's Matthew chapter 3. We know that John the Baptist's ministry is really important because it's in each of the synoptic gospels that each gospel writer begins a story with John the Baptist's story. Um, so that's exactly what we're going to start to. Okay, did you get to Matthew chapter 3? Verse 1, I think, through 6. We'll read. In those days, John the Baptist came, preaching in the desert of Judea, and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. This is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the desert, Prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. John's clothes were made of camel's hair, and he had a leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey, and people went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. So we'll stop there and look at what is John's main message. And John's message is right there in verse 2. He says, repent. That's his message. But why does he say to repent? And his reason for that's important. It's because the kingdom of heaven is near. Um, This quote from Isaiah says that, the voice calling in the desert, that was Isaiah prophesied many, many years before John, saying that John would, this would be his message, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. So really, at this time, John is really calling out to the people, saying the time has come. It's time to get ready. Like, enough of your old ways. It's time now. And he says, how do we prepare ourselves? We prepare to repent. Which I think you'll fill in there, for we repent is how we prepare. You know I'm not awesome at these song of blank things, so be patient with me. <laughs> okay, so we repent. Um, and that's really, that's where we're going to spend our time this morning, is on repentance. Do we really get it? Um, it's not something that we should be glossing over. Um, to get to the good stuff, right? Um, you've heard probably, or maybe you've even been the one to say it, that Christians today skip over repentance, that we don't talk about it enough, and we skip over it just to get right to the good stuff. Um, and we need to we need to take it seriously, and we're going to today, um, because it's the beginning of John's message. But even more importantly, just right there in Matthew, skip over to chapter 4, verse 17. This is the very beginning of Jesus' ministry now. And chapter 4, verse 17 says, From that time on, Jesus began to preach, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. And so that repent is the very beginning of what the gospel is. That's what we need to talk about, and we're not skipping over it today. Um, But here's a question for you. Do you agree that Christians and churches tend to skip over repentance? Um, in favor of talking about, or maybe only about grace and forgiveness. Do you agree that we skip over repentance? And what I want you to talk about is, why do you think that is? Why do we skip over repentance? So for a few minutes, talk about that. (laughs) 
Okay, did you come up with some reasons? Don't you agree that we kind of skip over repentance? Um, and I wonder if you could shout out to me some of the reasons that you think we do skip over repentance. Anyone have one? It's uncomfortable. How about it? What else? Anyone else think it's you have to admit that you did something wrong. Anything else? Do we really even know what it means? Are we all thinking the same thing? Yeah, that we don't have a... I agree. We don't know what it means. Do you think then there's like... A nervousness to then offend somebody with what you think it might mean. That was like it's a bad connotation. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's bad, maybe it's confusing. Oh, yeah? Uh, I was thinking that some of the reverence has been lost. Maybe in the casualness of the church or lost some of the ritual that maybe goes into the Like we don't take it serious enough. Yeah. Well, we're not very reverent. Mm-hmm. I think we might include everybody, so that way, you know, just keep coming, we'll keep loving you. Uh huh. Totally. So we don't want to offend. We want to be all about love. Yeah, it's kind of a tricky topic, right? Um, So I don't know if you know that um, we've all been working really hard this summer to make Heart Strings Seven. We, the teachers, and then we needed Cheryl because we couldn't do it, and so we needed Cheryl to help us like put our brains together. And we were working all summer. We met all throughout the summer trying to like put the pieces of Heart Strings together and not miss anything and make it as wonderful for you as it always is. And so, um, just in case you're not very good at math, um, for 17 years, Patty did kind of everything. And it took five of us to replace her this summer. <laughs> so... Just in case you weren't sure, on top of everyone Cheryl just mentioned, who's doing everything else behind the scenes. So it's taken a lot of us to pull this together. But this is actually a topic we talked about in one of our meetings was, do we even want to talk about repentance so early on and kill the joy of heartstrings? And, I mean, obviously we decided to do it. But, you know, it is hard But as I was preparing this, I was just struck that maybe we don't understand this. Um, Because just in the beginning of my study, so at the beginning of each of the Gospels, it says, this is the Gospel of Jesus. And you know, Gospel means good news. And then even in this beginning telling of John the Baptist, Luke's telling says that John the Baptist is proclaiming the good news. 
But we just saw his message is repent. And um, even it says that Jesus is proclaiming the good news right after all these John the Baptist stories. Then it tells Jesus' story of how he begins his ministry. And it says that Jesus is proclaiming the good news. Repent. So I thought, well, this doesn't sound like good news to me. I wouldn't have put those two words together, would you? Like, obviously, we don't think it sounds very wonderful. Um, and not that it's wrong. I just wouldn't have linked the two as good news and repentance is obviously hand in hand. I probably would have said a lot of other things were, was the good news, like maybe love or grace or forgiveness or uh, maybe heaven. That's the gospel. That's the good news. Where Jesus, John the Baptist, they're saying, first and foremost, the good news is repentance. So now when I study the Bible, I like to track things. And so especially when something catches me off, it especially makes me want to go back and look through the whole of the Bible and see what the whole whole thing is saying. I don't want to take anything out of context. I want to just be really careful that we understand it. So um, what I do, and in case you don't, you sure could, I use my concordance in the back of my Bible all the time. So if you are not familiar, in the very last pages of your Bible, you should have a concordance. Or if you use a smartphone or something like that, use your search function. That's your concordance. So what I do, and what I did this time, is look up repent and repentance and start looking up what else does it say. Um, and it is eye-opening. So that's what we're going to do. On your note guide are some of the verses that come up for repent. And we're just going to look those up and fill in the blanks. So let's begin by turning to Acts chapter 2. <laughs> this portion is of Acts is Right after Pentecost. So Jesus goes up to heaven. The disciples all go into the room. They shut the door. They're praying, praying, praying. The Holy Spirit, like, pounces on them. And they are changed. And after that moment, Peter comes out to the people. And this is, like, his first sermon. I think this is interesting because he is talking about repentance, too. Just John the Baptist, Jesus, and now Peter. He's saying repentance too. But let's look at what he says about repentance. So chapter 2, verse 38, says, Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So those you see are fill-ins on your blank. Forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Then if you go down to chapter 3, verse 19, repentance comes up again. Verse, chapter 3, verse 19 says, Repent then, and turn to God, so that your sins may be wiped out. The times of refreshing may come from the Lord. Refreshing may come from the Lord. Then if you go down just a little bit more to chapter 3, verse 26, it keeps going. It says, when God raised up his servant, meaning Jesus, he sent him first to you to bless you by turning each of you from your wicked ways, which is repentance. So God sent him, Jesus, first to you to bless you by turning you from your wicked ways. 
Okay, one more. Just flip a few pages to the book of Romans, which is next. Romans chapter 2, verse 4. Now this is Paul talking, so now this is another person, and what's his message? Romans chapter 2, verse 4 says, the very beginning of that says, Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, tolerance, and patience, not realizing here that God's kindness leads you toward repentance? That's that feeling. God's kindness leads you toward repentance. Do you see a pattern here? It like hit me over the head. Um, look how positive repentance is talked about. It does not say you'll be uncomfortable, you're going to have to be a failure, it's going to be hard and confusing and offensive. Really, repentance is forgiveness. You're going to receive from God. It's refreshing. It's a blessing. It's God's kindness is repentance. And I wonder, do we realize that? Do we think of it in those terms? Um, I suspect that if we thought that repentance was good news and was a blessing, we might want to talk about it all the time. Right? Wouldn't that change our story if we thought that was the good news? But I wonder for you, um, maybe though our experience is more telling, and what's your experience with repentance? Have you ever experienced anything, any of these positive blessings associated with repentance? Have you experienced those tangibly? Um, I know many of you might go, yeah, yeah, I know that it's good news in our heads, but that's not our feeling about it. And so I just want you to talk about what's your experience in repentance. Okay, go ahead. Okay, let's go back. I'm sure many of you associate repentance with negative feelings. Obviously, we all, everything was negative. Um, And I'm sure even your own experiences maybe um, associate more negative, hard feelings with it. Maybe you feel guilt or judgment. Um, Maybe you're very aware of your failure and that's lousy. and it just makes repentance a tough thing to go into. And I'm sure I'm not the only one who doesn't, like, start my day with, like, a joyful session of repentance. But, like, this isn't, like, it's not very fun. But I think that, I think the evil one has twisted repentance, that we have a misunderstanding. It's not this. We got it wrong. Um, and so that's today. I hope we can go further in and see why John the Baptist, why Jesus, why Peter, why Paul, they all call it good news. They weren't being ironic. (laughs) So, just to get you thinking about um, maybe your beginning understandings, or maybe where you are right now with repentance, my beginning understanding about repentance um, is a little bit skewed. Um, I was raised in the Catholic Church, and that's not really the reason why, but I was. And so my experience with repentance began when I was in second grade with the Sacrament of Reconciliation, or Confession. So that's where my beginning 
of repentances. And I remember it very clearly because I went to a Catholic school, so we did this sacrament during school time and walking in a line through the school to get to the church and wait in line to take our turn in the little black box of confession. And um, I... I just very clearly remember standing in that line, waiting my turn, trying to think up something to confess. <laughs> and <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> and sadly, I actually made stuff up. <laughs> right? Then I did, right? <laughs> and it wasn't necessarily that I had anything, but I didn't go into it feeling convicted. And I just figured I was probably mean to my brother. I'll just say that. And then I'll say my prayers of penance and I'll be like, good to go. And, <laughs> and I'm sure that's not what the Catholic Church intended. <laughs> and certainly not what John the Baptist or Jesus intended when they said repent. Um, but that was my confession. That was. That was my understanding of it, and that's as deep as it got. Um, but I also started seeking the Lord for real when I was young. Um, I was just really hungry for God and searching for Him. Um, I was in junior high at the time, so still in the Catholic school doing confession. But this, it was different now. Um, after some time of seeking Him, and I actually then committed my life to following Him, I still felt disconnected. I still felt like I was missing out on something. And um, I just was really hungry for intimacy with God. And I could see that other people had it, and I was jealous for what they had and couldn't figure out what I was missing. Um, And I just really clearly, one day, the Lord really spoke to me. Not audibly, but without a shadow of a doubt, God spoke right to me. And what he said was, you never said you were sorry. Right? (laughs) I was making things up. (laughs) But I was just incredibly convicted that day, not of any bad things, because I was a good kid. I was only 14. I hadn't really done that much. So it wasn't like any huge thing. And it wasn't about that. It was about I was living a life on my own terms. And even though it was good, it was on my own. And that the Lord really convicted me to repent from life alone and be a part of life with God. And that's when everything changed. That's when I felt forgiveness. That's when I felt love for real. That's that's when it was good and grace and mercy. I tangibly felt those things. And it for sure was good news. And I think that that is much more what John is talking about. And there's obviously like a huge difference between my childhood fake confessions and real, true, heartfelt repentance. Um, I think that plenty of times we do that and we get stuck in the confessions that are they're just words. They don't really mean anything. And we're just doing exactly what I did, just trying to clear our names, right? And do what we're supposed to do to get right with God and move on. Um, and that's what we see, actually, John addresses this. It's exactly what the Pharisees were doing um, when they came to see John the Baptist. So we're going to go right back to the book of Matthew for a minute and see what John says about confessions that don't mean anything. So Matthew chapter 3, we're going to pick it up again in verse 7. So 
So up until this time, people were coming to see John the Baptist and get baptized and um, commit to Judaism again, commit to the ways of God again. The Pharisees and the Sadducees, they're the religious people at the time, they had not been coming because they didn't really need repentance. So, but now, now they come. And in verse 7 it says, But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not think you can save yourself. We have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. So that's the warning of repentance. The warning, he says, verse 8 right there, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. Don't be just empty confessions and don't be just words. It has to be for real. Which doesn't sound familiar to, we hear that through the Bible too. We hear James say, faith without deeds is dead. You have to do it. Paul says in Acts that you have to prove your repentance by your deeds. You can't just have words. You can't just confess and then keep going. So what does it really mean to repent then to do this? Um, And I know if you've been in church for even a little bit, you know the Sunday school answer for repent, right? You're sinning, 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 and repent means you stop and you turn around. And we all know that that's repentance. We've seen, haven't you seen pastors do this a hundred times? Sinning, sinning, sinning. You repent and you must turn. And it's not repentance unless you turn. So you can't just be empty words and keep going. You have to turn. And I think, right, any of you who's a mother or have had any interaction with children, you know that how many kids just go, sorry, and keep going, right? And that we've all had this conversation. You have to mean it. You have to say what you mean. You have to actually change. That's repentance. But I think that thinking about repentance in the context of the kingdom of God, it actually broadens the picture even a little bit bigger than that. Um, And really points to why it is good news. It's more than just turning from the sins in our lives. Sorry, it's making me dragon crazy. So when we think about the kingdom of repentance in terms of things like in my eye, <laughs> we obviously found the wrong one this morning. Okay, anyways. <laughs> um, I'm just making me lose my place. Hold on a second. Um, okay, so when we're thinking about repentance in the terms of the kingdom of God, bigger than just the sins in our lives, but it, in terms of the bigger picture, um, I'm just going to have to read what I wrote. When thinking about in terms of the kingdom of God, I believe we have to look at the kingdom of this world that we're living in, participating in, and repent of being a part of that kingdom, and turn to enter into God's kingdom. So it is more than just, I'm sinning, doing bad choices, I'm going to stop the sin, and do something better. I think we need to look at the whole kingdom of this world, and repent from the kingdom of this world and turn towards the kingdom of heaven. And if we look at the bigger picture, it just changes it a, a little bit, but makes it, this could be the difference maker. Um,
here's a question for you that's not in your note guide. <clears throat> is it possible to be a follower of Jesus without repenting? Since we do tend to gloss over it and don't talk too much about it, and we talk all about following Jesus, he's our Lord and Savior, is it possible to follow him and not actually repent? Talk about that at your table for a minute. What do you think are the results of doing that? I'm sure people are trying or have tried. What are the results of following Jesus without actually repenting? Do that and I'll get to my microphone. Okay, but let's go back. So I think that there is, we really truly miss something when we become a follower of Jesus, but don't really acknowledge where we've come from. Um, There is, we need to look at the kingdom of this world and acknowledge that we've been a part of it and look at it for real before we can actually turn and enter into the kingdom of heaven. So what I want us to do now is take a few minutes to look at the realities and the truth of the kingdom of this world. Um, Just to begin with, we'll stay in Matthew right where we are um, in chapter 4, right before Jesus begins his ministry. Matthew quotes the prophet Isaiah again in verse 15 and 16. So I'm at chapter 4, verse 15 and 16. And this we can see is the beginning of the kingdom of this world idea. So the quote is, or I'm really going to read verse 16, because I don't know how to say all those words. It doesn't matter. Okay, verse 16 says, The people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. And just that next verse is, From that time on, Jesus began to preach, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. So what is Jesus telling them to turn from? His message is repent, and he's telling them to turn from from this, living in darkness, the living in the land of the shadow of death. That's what the kingdom of this world is. It's ruled by darkness and ruled by sin and evil. 1 Peter 5.8 says, Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. James first chapter 114 says, Each one is tempted by when by his own evil desire he is dragged away and enticed. Then after desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. The reality of the kingdom of this world and Satan's kingdom is that he's trying to kill us. Trying to kill us here physically trying to kill us forever spiritually. It's not just that the worldly things are not preferable or not the best choice or not a good idea. They're trying to kill us. That is Satan's intention. That sin's intention is that it gives birth to death. And that's the kingdom of this world. That's what's ruling. And I think that, when we start looking at the reality and the seriousness and the death it's producing, how are you not left with, get me out of here, right? That's repentance. Save me. And that's why he's our Savior. I wonder, though, have you ever had a time when your eyes flew open to the reality of sin? I know so many of us, we just... And hopefully, before you're a believer, really, 
But I think even now, we get caught up in sin and in the, uh, the darkness of this world and not even realize what's happening. And then all of a sudden, that conviction comes and our eyes are wide open to what's really happening. Maybe, have you had that realization that a particular sin is actually going to kill you? That it's the progression of a particular sin, it will destroy you. Or maybe even not physically kill you, although I think lots of sin absolutely goes that way. Maybe just absolutely destroy an area of your life. Have you ever realized that? That's the question I want you to talk about at your table. And I know now we're getting personal. <laughs> but I just want to encourage you. I know some of you don't know each other well yet, and you're not sure. But I just want to encourage you to make the most of this time to be vulnerable and to trust each other. We're all on the same page. We're all seeking God together. We all want to grow in our faith. And so I do want to encourage you. If you're feeling like, um, I don't think I'm going to answer the next few questions, then go for it. You can do it. And that's when we grow. And that's how we're going to change and to do this in community together. Um, so that being said, this is the question. Have you had a time when your eyes flew open to the reality that some sin or aspect of your life was going to kill you or at the very least destroy an area of your life? I want to know, how has that real realization impacted your repentance? How has the realization that it was going to kill you impacted your repentance? Talk for a minute about that. Going. Um, just a little note about your note guide is that how it works to prepare for today is that the note guide has to be finished before we meet so they can make copies. And I just kept working on this late until last night. So, your note guide is a bit incomplete, and I have stuff to add in. So, when you're looking at it, you mean, that's not what she's talking about. That's why you're going to have to take your own notes. So, I hope you can. <laughs> I just kept thinking, wait, there's one more thing. Wait, there's one more thing. So, here's my one more thing. So, the bigger picture of repentance is that it's not so much turning from a particular sin or a set of sins and turning to do better choices and more godly things and moral choices. It's not that. As long as we do that, we just get stuck with keeping it about us going, I'm going to try harder. I'm going to be more disciplined. I'm going to do better next time. I'm not going to do those mistakes anymore. And I know... I know we think like this because we've all talked like this. Of, I'm going to stop eating the junk because I know that God wants me to eat healthy. I'm going to do better. I'm going to throw out my junk food. I'm going to eat vegetables and salad. <laughs> That's my conversation. Maybe yours is different. <laughs> Maybe yours is um, I'm... I'm angry and anxious all the time. I'm going to stop being angry and anxious, and I'm going to be peaceful. I'm going to be calm, and I'm going to, like, control myself. Or maybe you're, I don't know, what else is there, right? Yeah. <laughs> you're going my girlfriend. This is all we talk about. <laughs> but what's yours? I don't 
whatever thing you wish you were going to do better, and when the focus is all about, I'm going to be more disciplined. I'm going to stop watching TV, and I'm going to read my Bible. It stays, joke, not on purpose. (laughs) And I think it's just so much bigger than that. As long as we see that, I think that's part of the enemy's trap, that it relies on our own strength to get better. And it doesn't look that bad. It looks like I can fix this. I can do better. And that's not what it should be. The reality is that this is the kingdom of darkness. This is the kingdom of the world that is out to destroy us. And we can't get out on our own. That's why Jesus is our Savior. We have to call on his help. We need to be yanked out of there. And as long as we do it on our own, we stay there. Um, We are also, if you think about in terms of a kingdom, in this kingdom of the world... It's all pain, it's strife, it's war, it's terrible, right? It's worry and anxiety. It's everything evil. And when we turn to God, when we go to Him, we're going towards the healer, the Prince of Peace, the one, the light of the world. That's who we're going to, and that's that kingdom. I feel like when we look at it in terms of the kingdom, it's a no-brainer, right? Like, get me out of there. I want to be with the Prince of Peace, not the ruler of this world. And when we see sin, when we look at those individual sins, but when we're willing to look at them for what they really are, for the weapon of mass destruction that they are for us, it causes us to be hopeless and call on the name of Jesus. And that is when we're safe. And it's good news. Because he's faithful, and he is quick to get us out of there and bring us into his kingdom. And that is really, that's John's message too, is repent. The kingdom is near. The kingdom is coming. Don't you want in on that kingdom and enough of this old, crummy, terrible kingdom? So repent. Go to the, go to the kingdom of God. Okay, but what about the pain we all feel? Right? It's not so simple always. I wonder, does anyone here struggle with feelings of guilt and not feeling forgiven? Anyone? Guilt? Feeling guilty? Never really happens? Do you dwell on the same sin over and over and over again? Um, let's just talk about that at your table for a minute. If you are someone who struggles with guilt and forgiveness, can you just share about that? Let's just throw it out there. It's a weapon of the enemy to feel guilty. So let's just throw it out in the darkness and shed light on it. So if you just, quickly, you don't have to go into deep, deep stuff. You don't want to, but let's just call it for what it is, okay? So share your table. Do you struggle with that? Okay, so I'm, I'm sure many of you have struggled with guilt before or feeling like a failure, like, um, that it seems like something's not working in repentance. And so I just want to address that, I guess. Because um, there's a time and a place for that. And 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10. You don't have to look it up, but if you wanted to jot it down. But 2 Corinthians 7, 10. says, Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. 
Godly sorrow brings repentance and leads to salvation. So there is a time for that guilty, yucky, what am I doing? Where am I feeling? But it brings repentance. When we see it for what it is, it causes us to need God and to repent and turn to Him. And this verse says, there's no room for regret. You know, and we see this in the story of the prodigal son. And I'm sure many of you know this story, but just to refresh your memory, um, the prodigal son, right, asks for his inheritance, takes all his money, leaves dad, and goes and squanders everything. And um, just wastes everything. Living, he takes his step, goes into the kingdom of this world, really. Squanders everything, and then realizes what he's done. The conviction has come. Um, the story of the prodigal son is in Luke chapter 15. Um, when he, it says in verse 17, when he come, when he came to his senses, conviction, right, godly sorrow. When he came to his senses, he said, "How many of my father's hired men have food to spare? And here I am, starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him." Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and went to his father. Isn't that the picture of repentance, right? He's over in the kingdom of this world going, What have I done? This is terrible. There's so much better over there. My father's there. And he makes a plan to go back to the father. And he... I just like that he prepares his speech, his confession, right? His, I'm going to do better. He makes that speech. Okay, I'll be a servant. That'll make things right. He plans that whole thing. But look at the father's response. It says, verse 20, so got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer to be called your son. But the father said to the servants, Quick, bring your best robe and put it on. Put a ring on his finger, sandal it on his feet, bring your fat and cap and kill it, so they can celebrate. The father didn't even let him finish his confession. Because repentance isn't so much about confession as it is saying, I want to go home. I want to be with the father. And the father takes us. It's so much more walking away from the sin than confessing the sin and dwelling on it. And that then, I think that's where the celebration is. The Father never lectures him, never punishes him, never reminds him never to make stupid mistakes again like that. Doesn't give him a time out of like, well, you can be a son after so much time again. He's immediately welcomed, immediately ushered into the family again, and celebrated again. He's forgiven and restored with barely a conversation about it. And I think that is truer of God than maybe we're expecting condemnation, and we're feeling guilt, and we need to rehash, and we need to do better. And that's not... That's not the picture of God that we see over and over again. The picture of God is quick to forgive, quick to have mercy, quick to restore us and refresh us. <clears throat> so the reality is, is that there, there is sorrow at the beginning of repentance, but it shouldn't follow repentance. Um, just listen to these verses. Psalm 30, verses 2 through 5 says, Weeping may remain for a night, but rejoicing comes in the morning. 
Romans 8, 1 says there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And Hebrews 10, 22 says, Let us draw near to God with a sincere heart, in full assurance of faith, having hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience. So the guilt and the regret, it should be over. When you repent and you are forgiven, it should end. And I suppose some of you might be saying, well, that's easier said than done. That's not what happened to me. And what I want us to do is um, take the rest of our time to look at like the ultimate Bible screw-up and the ultimate repenter, David. Um, we're going to look at Psalm 51 and look at how he repents um, and see if we can get some tips from him. Psalm 51. Um, let me just fill you in on what this psalm is in reference to. It is um, the story that connects to this psalm is in Second Samuel chapter 11. Oh, now we're up to your note back. <laughs> Second Samuel chapter 11. What happens in that story is um, David is king by now, and um, his army is out like on the front lines. He is staying home to rest, which was not what he was supposed to be doing. But he's at home. He notices Bathsheba, the pretty girl next door, taking a bath. And he sends his guys after her to bring her in. And he sleeps with her. And the problem is she's married. And her husband is a soldier on the line. And to make it more complicated, she gets pregnant. And um, for David to try and justify, or really not justify, to cover up his giant mistake of sleeping with a married woman, he um, brings her husband home and says, go home, sleep with your wife, and maybe you'll get pregnant. And it'll be your baby, not mine. But the husband says, oh, no, no, no. Like, I'll come home, but I'm not going home to her. All the other men are away from their wives. How can I go and, like, have this luxury of being with my wife? So he won't sleep with his wife. And so the problem is that David's left with, like, she's going to have this baby. It's going to be me. Like, this is so bad. I know. I'll kill the husband. So he sets up the whole military thing to have her husband killed so he can marry her immediately. And it'll everyone will think the baby is his rightly. And what happens is, so I mean, how bad can it be? I mean, that's, he's just being bad. And wrong choice after wrong choice, bad. Um, and the prophet Nathan calls him out on it. And this psalm then is his repentance because he is immediately convicted and um, he, he calls on God. So I'm going to read this whole song. And I just want you to listen to it, knowing that's the story. Maybe you can relate to some of his mistakes, or maybe you're glad you just haven't made those mistakes. But to know the weight of it, I think is important, because we've all been in places where our sin was so heavy, we've gotten in so deep, that we're in a real bad place. So Psalm 51 says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. 
According to your great compassion, blot out my transgression. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. Surely I am sinful for sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Surely you desire truth in the inner parts and teach me wisdom in the inmost place. Cleanse me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I'll be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence, or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will turn back to you. Save me from blood guilt, O God, the God who saves me, and my tongue will sing your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice, or I will bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. In your good pleasure, make thine prosper, build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then there will be righteous sacrifices, whole burnt offerings to delight you. Then bowls will be offered on your altar. I think we can learn from David's example on how to, how to repent, how to turn to God, how to pray, even what words to say. Um, the first, and I think maybe the most important thing that we can get from this is David's focus on God. I don't know about you, but like when we repent, how much do we focus on us? And our sin and David, more, so much more of it is on God. Even in verse 1, the very beginning, have mercy on me, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion. That he's, his focus is not on how terrible he is, but on how good God is. I also think it's really interesting that he doesn't rehash the details of his sin. He does not say, can't believe I slept with her. I can't believe I, like, give in to my temptation. I can't believe I, I should never have killed her husband. I never should have this. I can't believe I did that. I'm a terrible person. I make terrible choices. I do this again and again. That's not what he says. If you didn't know the story, you wouldn't know what he did. And I think that that's really important. He doesn't not confess and doesn't not acknowledge his sin. He definitely says, I know my transgressions. I know I've sinned against you. So I think there's a difference there. He acknowledges sin without making that the most important thing, without giving it more than it's worth. And putting really the focus is on who God is, God's compassion, God's mercy, God's forgiveness. His eyes are on the Lord. In his repentance. Um, he also calls on God to help him. He does not, like we said before, he doesn't go, I'm going to do better. I will put up walls so I can't see any other cute girls. I will, next time I'll be on the line, so I won't get stuck. He's not making any plans about how this is never going to happen again. He's calling on God for the action. Right? <clears throat> Look at verse 10, starting verse 10. Create in me a pure heart. Renew a steadfast spirit in me. Don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of salvation. 
Grant me a willing spirit. He's putting all of that responsibility on God to do it in him. He is aware of his inability to fix himself. He needs God to do it. And not like discipline and planning and um, self-control. Those, not that those things don't come, but they don't come first. First, we call on God and we ask Him to help us. And those things come later. As the Spirit, as He says, grant me a willing spirit, renew a steadfast spirit. He's trusting God to make Him a disciplined person. And that he's going to cooperate, I'm sure, is what he means. He will cooperate with God because now he'll be in the kingdom of God. But he is trusting God for the strength to do it, not his own abilities. I think what's interesting here, too, is that he never promises to do better. He makes one promise to God, and I think I will be adding this into my prayers, that the promise is in verse 13. I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will turn back to you. He says that he will now be a part of the kingdom of God to help bring other people into the kingdom of God. Isn't that that's so much greater than I'm going to try harder and I'm going to be good. I'm going to trust God to make me new, give me strength, make me a holy, clean, washed person, and I will invite other people to come with me and to join the kingdom of God. That's a huge difference from the way we pray. Um, I want you to think about this now. Review this. Look at how David prays. At your table, this question's not in your notebook either, but at your table, what will you take away from David's prayer? If you were going to incorporate this kind of prayer life, this kind of repentance in your life, what would what would have to change? What words are going to change for you? Um, yeah, so that's your question. What will you take away from David's example in repentance? We've got a couple more minutes. Go ahead. Okay, so just one more thought. Um, so remember that John the Baptist ministry, Jesus ministry, all begins with repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. And I just firmly believe that the more we take repentance is not so much focusing on our sin and wallowing in that, but instead fixing our eyes on Jesus, the only hope we have to rescue us from our sin, that is how we enter the kingdom of God. Um, I would like for us to take some time to do a few more minutes around the tables to pray together. Um, it's so powerful to speak these words and to call on Jesus. And maybe you're this morning feeling like there is an area of sin that you're being convicted of, even that you see you see it for what it is. It is on a path to destroy you, and you need to call on Jesus. I think repentance also is it's. It's not just sin-based. It is so much more turning and calling on Jesus-based. That every time we profess our trust in God, every time we say, there's nothing in this world for me, all I need is you, that's an act of repentance too. It's turning away from the world and turning toward God's kingdom. And 
putting our trust in him again and reminding ourselves that he is the one who can heal us. He is that Prince of Peace. I will look to him for those things and nothing in this world. So I'd like for you to, I'd like everyone to have a chance to pray. And um, if that freaks you out, you'll be okay. (laughs) Take a chance to call on Jesus for something specific or just to fix your eyes on him, your only hope in this world. So just go around. If some, maybe if your table leader is here, let your table leader can start. If she's not here, then you'll have to fight for it. If somebody start. Go around the table. And, you know, don't be a monologue prayer. Everybody wants to pray together and have a conversation with God together. So don't talk forever. Give everyone a chance to pray together and agree with each other. And then I'll close this in a few minutes. Okay? So table leaders, go ahead. Seriously, it's terrible. Oh,